Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas of the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In this, our last episode of 2015, I'm presenting the best moments from our show in an exciting and tumultuous year. I talked with over 30 experts on a range of policy problems and solutions, and in many cases was able to dive a little deeper into what makes our scholars tick. Before I get to the show, I want to thank the team here that makes this podcast possible. Zach Kulzer, Mark Holscher, Carissa Nitsche, Jessica Pavone, Rebecca Weiser, and Eric Abalahan. Also, special thanks to the leadership and support of David Nassar and Richard Fawal. And a very special thanks to our intern, Karen Welgurgis, who was instrumental in putting this episode and many others together. And my deep thanks to the Academy of Podcasters and the Podcast Movement community, who honored the Brookings Cafeteria with the award for Best News in Politics podcast in 2015. And finally, thanks to you, the listeners, for downloading, sharing, and, I hope, enjoying the program. Remember that you can find the full episodes from which these clips are taken on our website at brookings.edu bcp. All right, on with the show. Big ideas are the bedrock of research at Brookings. From fighting terrorism by educating girls, to higher education, to changing the way we think about federalism, my guests covered it all. Here's former Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard, on the transformative power of universal education. Well, education uh, remains the best path out of poverty, uh, both for people and for nations. And so if you look at the development statistics, uh, it's absolutely clear that if you want to make a difference to poverty eradication, if you want to make a difference to peace and stability, even to tolerance of people from other religions, then education makes that difference. Uh, So if we could deliver, as we promised, basic education at high quality to children around the world, we'd make a real uh, dent on global poverty and we'd be setting up the countries from which those children come for success. She went on to speak passionately about the role of girls' education in fighting the scourge of terrorism. If you educate a girl, you'll change her life and you'll change uh, the society in which she lives. Uh, Educating girls is tremendously powerful. It means that that girl uh, will go on to earn more income in her life. She's very likely to marry later. She's likely to choose to have fewer children. Uh, She'll make a contribution to development in her own community. And given education is such a powerful change agent for girls, we should be investing in it. But unfortunately, the forces of darkness, the terrorists know that education is a powerful change agent too. And that is why they seek to deny its power to girls by the the shootings that we've seen, including the shooting of Malala, the acts of direct violence, the kidnappings uh, in northern Nigeria and in other places, all of the things that are meant to send a message to, to girls, don't go to school, don't risk it, and we've got to be pushing hard in the other direction. Stuart Butler explained his vision of higher education's future. I really think that you're seeing um, a f- going to see a fundamental change over the next several years, uh, with prices dropping to you know half or or even much lower uh, uh, in uh, in these areas. I think that uh, also you're going to see a combination of sort of activities as being part of college. I think we're going to move away from uh, solely the idea that you know your child goes away for four years uh, to a residential college and then comes out and looks for a job. Uh, to one where there's going to be a lot of different experiences. It's more than just a, a semester abroad, but the kind of externships, uh, the, the kinds of maybe um, part of the time is going to be spent in an industry with 
with courses associated with it, for example. I think part could be at home. I don't know if that's good news or bad news, but uh, uh, where maybe some of the initial courses are done online, maybe even while your child's still at high school. Uh, I think you're just going to see a lot of changes of that kind uh, over the next several years. And I think we're, we're already beginning to see them, and I think they're just going to accelerate. Bruce Katz called our traditional view of federalism a tired concept and explained how the 21st century metropolitan area, not the federal government, is really at the top of the pyramid. I think you're right. We thought about it as a pyramid where the federal government sits on top and they rain down resources and rules and the rest of us uh, basically dutifully um, respond to, to, you know, to federal signals. Uh, just not the way we operate in the United States. I mean, much more entrepreneurial, much more dynamic, much more innovative. I mean, no one's waiting for Washington to do anything, particularly now <laughs> that Washington is not doing anything. So in my view, because cities and metros are the engines of the economy, the centers of trade, they're on the front lines of demographic change and climate change, they're at the top of the pyramid. And really what we have is a national government in states that should be in the service of city and metropolitan areas, their priorities, their visions. Um, we're also not one country in a way because these 100 metros or 388 metros have very distinct economies, uh, very different assets, very different possibilities. So what you really want is for the national and state governments to be in the service of these distinctive visions and possibilities. In my interviews with experts, they often challenge the conventional wisdom and offer new ways to think about difficult issues. Bruce Rydell was pointed in his assessment of the mindset of jihadist terrorists. Osama bin Laden, before the SEALs delivered justice to him, put it quite nicely, I think. He said, if we, if we hated your way of life, we would have attacked Sweden, not the United States of America. It's American policies over many, many years, decades, that have produced this wellspring of anger against the United States of America. And simply changing whether or not uh, we let um, girls go to school or how people dress in the United States or whether we uh, uh, drink alcohol or not, that's not the issues. It's not our way of life that they're opposed to. It's the policies that we have implemented in the Muslim world, both by Democrats and Republicans, over many, many decades. When my colleague interviewed former Las Vegas water czar Pat Mulroy, he asked a question that is on a lot of people's minds as they fly into McCarran International Airport. If Nevada and the region are suffering from a drought, what about all that water used by the casinos? What about that big fountain at the Bellagio? A community uses its water in various ways. It uses it for its residences, and it uses it for its economy. The entire Las Vegas Strip, with the fountains and 40 million tourists a year that come through, as their net water footprint, they use 3 to 4% of all the water. And they are the single largest employer in the state of Nevada, the single largest producer of state taxes, because Southern Nevada recycles 93% of its wastewater. That's the secret. So everything that's used inside in those hotels is captured, treated, and reused, either indirectly or directly. So the, those outside fountains, visually... They are a horrible public relations nightmare. In terms of actual water use, right. they're nothing. 
Michael O'Hanlon cautioned us not to assume that the era of conventional land warfare and stabilization missions has been replaced by high-tech strategies and gadgets. And certainly as you look in the Western Pacific or other areas of potential major power competition, it is more the high technology gadgets or weapons that are crucial. And that's true. And we probably have underplayed their role in terms of the high visibility national security debates of the 21st century. So I welcome people saying we've got a shift. But as, with is, often, as is often the case in American strategic debates, we tend to overdo it. And so now we're saying we're just not going to do large-scale stabilization missions anymore as if we can make this decree from the White House or somewhere else inside the Beltway in Washington, and it will produce whatever results we wish in the rest of the world. To use some of the, the, the time-honored cliches, you know, the enemy may get a vote too. Or the Bolshevik line, you may not have an interest in war, but war may have an interest in you. I, I paraphrase that to say we may not at the moment have an interest in counterinsurgency and stabilization missions, but they may have an interest in us. Elaine Kamark really challenged our notions of why political skills are needed in this time of polarized politics. In a polarized time, as we are in, with large differences between the parties and large differences between the voters that support those parties. In other words, the the Republicans in, in Congress aren't making this stuff up. I mean, they've got voters at home who really feel like this, and the same for the Democrats. It, in times like this, you actually need more political skills, not less, because the political skill is ultimately the negotiation skill. I mean, it's interesting. I think that one of the appeals of Trump is he kept, keeps asserting that he's a deal maker, that he can make the deal. Well, what's been missing from our politics recently are politicians capable of making the deal, cutting the deal, and moving us forward. And that's why I said you probably need more, better politicians as opposed to fewer. And in our discussion about the Affordable Care Act, Alice Rivlin urged us to think more broadly about health care, about more than just medical care. Medical care is probably a rather small part of health, actually. When you think about what would make Americans healthier uh, over their lifetimes, most of the things that would make a difference are not health care. They are exercise, they are diet, they are not smoking, they are not abusing other kinds of substances, they're environmental, uh, living in, uh, in a cleaner environment, uh, and we have to work very hard on those kinds of things, and most of them are related to health care, but not very closely. Experts also drew on their deep knowledge of history and their subjects to illuminate today's most vexing problems. Here's Suzanne Maloney in an episode on the Iran nuclear deal on U.S.-Iran relations. I asked her about the relevance of the 1979 hostage crisis. I think it's still a valid frame of reference because it reflects this unwillingness to adhere to the norms of the international system that is still part of the Iranian government's ethos. Um, and the failure to take any responsibility for that action, the failure to acknowledge the wrongdoing, um, and, and in fact, the repetition of similar sorts of actions in the attack two years ago on the British embassy uh, and uh, continuing diplomatic fracases with various states around the world um, in similar fashion, I think, is reflective of a government that uh, is still struggling with its place in the world, 
Um, I don't think that the hostage crisis is the end-all, be-all. I, I don't even know to what extent it motivates or even is, you know, first or foremost in the minds of American policymakers today. Um, it is, to some extent, ancient history among a generation that has grown up both both here in the United States and particularly in Iran, where most of the population is too young to remember that period. Maloney went on to describe Iranians' own sense of historical grievance about U.S. policy. I would note that Iranians also have, you know, their own historical grievances that they hold quite dear, um, particularly the role of the United States in contributing to the events that led to the toppling of Prime Minister Mossadegh in 1953 is uh, an episode that looms large in the Iranian imagination. Um, other American uh, policies, whether it was support for Saddam Hussein, uh, the failure to to hold Saddam Hussein accountable for his use of chemical weapons against both his own population and Iranian civilians, these are all uh, policies that uh, are still very much resented by the Iranian people. Um, rightly so. They have been acknowledged and various American officials have expressed regret about some of our past policies. We haven't heard the same level of, uh, of historical responsibility on the part of the Iranian leadership. Kathy Moon, who gave me a compelling book recommendation that you'll hear about in the full episode, offered this perspective of North Korea based on her research and having visited there. Um, and I think what we can do today to, um, to make our understanding of North Korea more broad is to uh, try to educate uh, people about North Korea as a historical whole. North Korean people also as separate from the state. Um, North Korea as having a culture of its own. We don't think of North Koreans as having a cultural life but they do. Uh, we don't think of North Koreans as having family lives, um, and they do. So I think learning to see North Korea as a society like any other society with active, dynamic changes going on, and seeing the North Korean state as a very difficult, challenging, and at times threatening state, um, and an unstable state, um, those two can go to, to hand in hand. We need to do both. We need to look at the state as a problem that we need to address and hopefully resolve diplomatically. We also need to look at the society as having a history and a culture um, that people continue to live and change day to day. If you like data, our scholars delivered a lot of it in their discussions of the issues. David Wessel broke down the numbers from a recent U.S. Treasury report to give a more nuanced and accurate view of student debt. The majority of borrowers who went to more traditional four-year colleges, you know, the state university, and those who went to graduate school, did somewhere between okay and well in the job market. They had low rates of default, even though they typically borrowed more money. Here's an example. Students at the University of Phoenix, a for-profit, have borrowed more than at any other single school. Of those who finished in 2009, 45% were in default five years later. Compare that to students at New York University, a private institution where there's been a lot of borrowing. Only 6% of them were in default five years later. One more thing I learned. The future is not going to be exactly like the past. As the job market has improved, there has been some softening of enrollments at for-profit and community colleges. 
The government has been cracking down on these for-profit schools, and it has been promoting income-based repayment plans that can help people who go to school but don't end up with very well-paying jobs. That suggests we will not see an inexorable increase in student loan defaults into the future. Mesa Jalbut brought data to bear from her Arab World Learning Barometer report on the problem of educational achievement in the Arab world, a critical factor for access to jobs and development. Somewhere around 50% of children in the Arab world are not achieving um, the learning that they need to be achieving at the level they're at. So uh, they can't read or write at the, le- at the international levels by the time they hit grade eight. So that is uh, very concerning, and it does indicate there is a huge problem in the education system and a very big concern around their future uh, potential in terms of being able to um, access jobs and um, have the life skills to have productive lives. And Homi Karas, in an interview I did with him and John MacArthur, explained how much money rich nations put into their own agriculture systems while they spend comparatively little on aid to developing nations. Well, I think that people uh, look to the uh, richest countries in the uh, world to try to uh, provide some of the resources that will be needed to solve some of these great global challenges. And I think the uh, remarkable thing that we found is that for all of the high rhetoric about the uh, appalling uh, uh, nature of hunger in the world today, people actually don't do much to try to solve this problem other than talk about it. So the amount of the resources that are going into food and nutrition security is tiny. And the rich developed countries understand that it is important to put money into agricultural systems. They put $250 billion per year into their own agricultural systems where only about 30 million people live. For developing countries, they only provide $11 billion per year in aid. And 3 billion people live and survive in rural areas in those uh, places. So the size of the imbalance of how resources are being allocated is just massive. The guests I have on the podcast are leading experts in their fields, but make no mistake, they are also passionate about their views. Here's former NATO Secretary General and EU Foreign Policy Chief Javier Solana in our discussion about the European Union, talking about the perils of nationalism. Nationalism is, is, is like a, it's impossible to, it's a sentiment, it's not a rational decision. And therefore, uh, you cannot argue about that. So I think nationalism is, uh, is something which is bad in itself. I think that uh, in the time that we are living, in the times of, it's the time for integration, for globalization, for trying to recognize that borders are not that important, that uh, we are neighbors of everybody and everybody is neighbors of us, even if we are not physically neighbors. Think about the climate change, for instance. You, you know, you contaminate the sky. You don't continue, contaminate your sky. You contaminate the sky. And therefore, the solution has to be a solution that has to be global because the problem is global. So nationalism is a big mistake. Robert Putnam of Harvard University in an interview about his book, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, 
with our own E.J. Dion and Richard Reeves, reflected in a very personal way about returning to his hometown of Port Clinton, Ohio. I think the most fundamental surprise to me, and it was very vivid in, in going back to Port Clinton, is how disconnected poor kids in America have become. It didn't used to be that way in America, mm. that poor kids were so isolated from everything. They, they had disadvantages, of course, but they were, when I was growing up, even the poor kids in town had other people in town looking, at, looking out for them. The, you can see this in the stories of the books. The, the pastor who's looking out for a really smart kid who's coming from a poor family background, or the, in one case, the boss who's uh, of a woman who's her clean cleans her house, but not, she notices that this girl house cleaner ought to be going to college, and she steps in and helps her. Now in Port Clinton, there just aren't those mm. kinds of supports around for for poor kids, and I think it's because fundamentally, as America has become more economically polarized, we've also become more socially segregated. So in our daily lives, we're just less likely now than would have been true a generation ago, even to know people in these in these really awful mm. circumstances. And part of the reason for the book is to say, look, do you do you know how things bad things have gotten? Would do you want to live in an America in which there are kids who are growing mm. up like that? Amy Liu brought sound effects to her expert perspective on the resilience and future of New Orleans 10 years after Hurricane Katrina. Just since you said I was just there, I brought, since this is a podcast, I want to dingle a couple things for you. (laughs) I brought from my last trip, thanks to my friends over at the Data Center, um, Mardi Gras beads, a really cute little um, bracelet of uh, high-heeled shoes. Um, But this is the... I bring this in part to say there's so much optimism and creativity in this community. And I would say today, going into 10 years, um, this is a community that doesn't want to be solely defined by the hurricane 10 years ago. I think they want to be defined as that really creative place in the South that um, can embrace people from all communities of color, all ethnic groups, in a way that's really fun, creative, inclusive, um, and just unique. And it'll, it's going to be, we can talk about the numbers in a moment, but I think that's their real challenge. In a joint interview with Natan Sachs and Caleb Elgandy on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process during a time of increased violence in this fall, Elgandy had this to say. Things can change, and things can change quite dramatically. And I can't eliminate Uh, I can't rule out the possibility that at some point down the road, uh, psychologies could change to the point where there is no other way to resolve this conflict except through uh, enfranchising the Palestinians in an Israeli state. Um, But it's either that or we get to, we divide, uh, you know, we divide the land into two states now, I don't think Palestinians, I think it's easy, it's relatively easy for the empowered and entitled group to sort of say, well, we can put off uh, a, a, a resolution of this indefinitely until more, you know, the, until the political conditions are better. But for the, for the population that is deprived of their rights, um, it's, it's not something that they are, are willing to do. And we're seeing the, the fruits of that today. You know, there there will be you know, sort of putting this off indefinitely means a recurring, uh, you know, sort of the situation that we're seeing today will happen again and again and again 
uh, without any end. There isn't a way to manage it forever. And Kamal Qureshi really struck a chord in his very personal insight on the Syrian refugee crisis that dominated headlines over the summer. It is a sad moment. It is a sad moment because we feel that that international solidarity is not there. And uh, that solidarity was, it seems to me, for a fleeting moment triggered by that little uh, child you made references to. But what makes the whole thing sadder is that we don't see that solidarity within the European Union as as well. And that makes the whole thing even sadder. Uh, you know, the case of that little boy is sad in the human sense of, uh, of the word. But the way in which the European Union is bickering amongst themselves is, uh, from a lack of a better term, a kind of a governance or bureaucratic sadness. If the EU can't do this within itself, imagine what is it that we can expect from the rest of the world. One of my favorite things about hosting the Brookings Cafeteria podcast is getting to know my guests a little bit more on a personal level. Sure, we always talk about the issues, the ideas, and the solutions, but sometimes we take a few steps back and so that my guests can share stories about their lives and backgrounds. Richard Bush connected his experience as the child of missionaries in Asia with his professional career. When I was growing up, my parents were missionaries in Asia. Um, so I lived in the Philippines for five years as a small boy and then in Hong Kong for five years as in, during my secondary school years. The experience of living in a Chinese society for five years led me pretty quickly to decide to do China professionally. Here's Canadian Member of Parliament Christia Freeland, who authored a Brookings essay titled My Ukraine, telling me about her family's connection to that country. My Ukraine is really a story of political exile and return. Uh, my mother was born in a refugee camp as her fl family fled Ukraine after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Mm -hmm. That was 1938-39? And, 1939. Okay. Uh, and her family, uh, like many Ukrainian families, uh, managed to immigrate to the West, in my family's case, to Western Canada, to Alberta. And they were quite a special uh, immigration, uh, similar to the people who immigrated in those years from the Baltic republics, mm -hmm. in that uh, they saw themselves very self-consciously as political refugees. Um, they believed, I think rightly, uh, that Ukraine was uh, being repressed by the Soviet Union, um, both as a state and that also the Ukrainian language was being repressed. And they saw themselves in the immigration as having a duty to keep the Ukrainian spirit alive. So I was raised in a community that believed that. Uh, it often, I think, seemed absurd uh, to people who weren't Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. um, you know, imagine how people felt in the 60s, 70s, 80s about the idea that the Soviet Union might collapse and Ukraine might emerge as an independent state. And I still remember very clearly, I uh, went to Harvard and I studied Russian history and literature. 
And I remember when I got to Harvard thinking, you know, oh, my God, I was raised by these crazy people. Um, and my smart Harvard professors see how the world really is. And these visions that my grandparents, you know, who spoke English with a heavy accent and so on, and their friends had about what was going to happen with Ukraine were just an immigre fantasy. And then, of course, 1989 happened. And then... 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it turned out my grandparents, with their heavy accents, were right, and the Harvard professors had been wrong. And finally, Brookings President Strobe Talbot shared with me a vignette about his parents as he was growing up in Ohio. While I was a, a very young when we moved from Dayton, Ohio, which is in the southern part of the state, up to Cleveland, I can still remember the importance to my mom and dad of an organization called the United World Federalists, which was a uh, was born out of uh, World War II, uh, and it was essentially a civic organization that crossed party lines. In fact, I think there was at least as much Republican uh, support for the idea as uh, in the Democratic Party. My my parents, as you say, are were uh, moderate Republicans, uh, to promote the idea that if we were going to avoid another world war, there had to be some degree of, if not global government, then at least effective global governance. And that, that word, of course, is very much part of the vocabulary of the Brookings Institution, governance. But they, they, these were idealists, but they were idealists who also had a lot of uh, pragmatism. My dad had uh, spent the entire war uh, in the Navy. Uh, he was in D-Day. He had a lot of uh, very dangerous assignments, uh, including as a, as a salvage diver in the, uh, in the North Atlantic uh, and, as I say, being part of the invasion. And my, my mother uh, was working for the forerunner of what we now call IBM, the International Business Machine Company, working on uh, punch cards for a big government project, and all she knew was the name of it, which was the Manhattan Construction Project. Uh, and of course, that turned out to be uh, the code name for a secret program to develop the atomic bomb. So in her own way, kind of a, a low-level uh, Rosie the Riveter, uh, she was involved unwittingly uh, in developing the atomic bomb. Uh, and, of course, not only had the world uh, suffered the trauma of World War II, but we had also seen, uh, ironically, the United States in the role of the first and so far, and let's hope the last, country to use nuclear energy uh, to destroy entire cities. And that's all for this special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. What a great year it was for us. I learned a lot, and I expect all of you learned a lot, too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for giving us a rating and review on iTunes, where you can subscribe. Also visit us on our website at brookings.edu slash bcp. Happy New Year. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.